This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. We have a very exciting episode today, where we examine the working lives of professional athletes. In contemporary world of work, it's often mentioned that careers in various occupations are becoming uncertain, fragmented, and involving an increasing number of transitions. Yet, if we think of the careers of athletes, their working lives have always been experienced as boundaryless, precarious, or even hazardous. Today, we explore the working conditions of professional sport and their implications for athletes, including the ways they form their identities, and whether, how, and what kind of meaning they find from work. I'm delighted to have Professor Martin Roderick discussing with me today. Martin is the head of department in the Department of Sport and Exercise Science at Durham University. He has studied extensively the work and careers of professional athletes and the related issues of work-life balance, family life, and mental health. So welcome to the podcast, Martin. It's really an honor for me to have you here today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm slightly nervous. This is only the second podcast I've ever done. So um, uh, so I'm eager to get stuck in with you, uh, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's really excited to have this conversation and I think we only met in I mean in the online conference a few weeks ago but so I think we had the chance to have some conversations in the previous or the QRC in I think 2014 in in Loughborough when I was still a PhD student and yeah you gave me some really nice comments on my work on on runners and spirituality and asking some critical questions about do they realize what kind of working conditions they have and, and so forth. So I really look forward to exploring a little bit the dark side of, of sport work, I I guess, as well. Yes, so, I, well, I certainly remember the the conference and I remember your work, but I've been reading your work for, for many years now, Nura, so I'm very familiar with it. Yeah. I think you really bring in these like really important questions about, you know, football is is the main context you are studying, but also working lives of professional athletes in other sports. That often working in sport is is thought of something that is like a dream come true and a vocation and 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 so on. But when when athletes then enter this work and they will start realizing all these things about you know, uh, the working conditions are so uncontrollable. You are really at the mercy of the coaches, like whether you are picked or not. You really don't have a lot of choice when it comes to like 
whether you get the contract or not, or if you have to move to a different city and so on. So I think a nice start would be just talking a little bit about this work, the book that you published, The Work of Professional Football, Labor of Love. And you have a question mark, the labor of love question mark. So maybe we just start with these cultural imaginations of what working in professional sport would be like and and then what is the reality that athletes encounter when they actually do that work for a longer time yeah sure thank you for for that question i um i was a footballer and so all the time the focus of my researchers starts off with me thinking through how i would have thought um back many years ago when when i was a player but also being so close still to many of the players that i used to play with I don't confine myself to football um, in the way that I did, but it is certainly my default position. But when I was a young player, when I started to take football more seriously and people were talking to me uh, about the prospect of being a footballer, um, I I found I couldn't escape this idea that that this must be the best thing ever. And in fact, my, my own parents and I had two older sisters who are musicians um, my family never for one moment thought I was going to actually be a footballer. And so I, I strangely, I, I thought differently to many of the other players that were around me. And that idea that we were somehow striving to make it, whatever in inverted commas making it would mean, uh, and all the time that this must be the best thing that could ever have happened to me, um, all sorts of friends that I had, started not to treat me differently but there's a sort of a a specialness I I I was signed as a young player for Portsmouth at the age of 16 all my friends went to watch them play I grew up in Portsmouth this you know nothing would be better than to play for your home team right so um this idea that this was going to be something that was really good that there was going to be a really positive force in my life uh, was ever present. It surrounded me. It was inescapable. Yet, from almost the first day, I, I having signed uh, the, my first contract as a young apprentice footballer, you begin to realise what it's all about and, and where you are in the scheme of things, how close you are to the real football, first-team football, the types of things that were happening to other players around me. I noticed these things. I The... the, the the monotony of, of constantly training, of constantly traveling, of, of knowing for 46, 48 weeks of the year exactly where you're going to be, exactly what you're likely to be doing, longing for snow because it buys you a weekend away, uh, perhaps not playing, uh, and watching friends be really put, you know, badly injured, um, other players just not making the mark and, and leaving the club and seeing and w- what would happen to them and knowing where they would go, looking at the way in which they were so confused about what was happening to them. I mean, I, I carried on studying when I was a young player, but I received a lot of criticism for it, not just from the people at the club, but also friends saying, you know, why, why wouldn't I focus all my energies on trying to make it as a footballer? You know, one of the conditions, actually, my, my parents were very insistent that I, I stayed at college um, to carry on my qualifications but nobody else really thought that that was a relevant thing for me to be doing I should be focusing all my energy so from a very early age really I started to recognize that the focus was going to be on the sport me as a footballer 
and that sense of whilst I didn't talk about it in these terms at that point in time, my identity was was wholly tied to my job. Uh, even at sixteen, I I had trained hard to get there, but then from the age of sixteen, I started to recognise and see among other players around me how it was how it was a constraint. Um, everybody only ever referred to the football club matches, how I'd played, whether I was in the team, what was it like to be with other players. So from a very early age, um, I started to experience the constraints that came with the identity of a footballer, albeit that identity was seen by many others, the majority of people that I ever met, as something that was was really worth having. It, it gave me everything that I should ever want. And so I found that very hard. And of course, when I realised I was not going to be the footballer that I imagined I was going to be, I had four years at Portsmouth. I didn't go to university until I was 21. Um, by that point, I, I had seen a lot. I had experienced a lot. And I understood my own position relative to other footballers around me. My ambitions weren't to make it as a footballer. But still, people assumed that I must be disappointed. People assumed that it must have been a crushing departure. People assumed all sorts of things that were really tied to what I think Katrina Douglas, for your listeners, would recognise was a performance narrative, that I must be disappointed, that it must be the worst thing ever, that I must try to get back. Or was I taking every opportunity to to reestablish that identity? But for me, I, I not that I'd moved on, but I recognised what that identity was and, and what that job was was about. And I think I started to see that through all my research very quickly. The footballers that I spoke to, particularly in, in relation to the um, the book, The Work of Professional Football, the labour of love and the question mark comes from that idea that people assume that it must be something that you love doing. It brings you all the psychic income that you could ever need. But for the footballers themselves, they recognise where they are in the game. They recognise how they're used. For some, they talked in terms of being exploited. For others, they recognise really their alien alienated status. But without being able to publicly say this out loud, they would never have talked in these terms publicly to a journalist. Um, in autobiographies, you very rarely see it. Um, and yet, almost every player I spoke to talked in these terms. And so that that questioning of that labour of love really is, is about that paradox that on the one hand, everybody I was meeting and everybody you would meet who was a fan of, of the game would assume something about it. Yet for the players, their experiences of it much in contrast. And, and that really led me to, to do the research in the first place. I was motivated because I saw so many friends of mine who I played with really struggling, but without able to, without any ability to voice their opinion. And so that whilst I didn't in, in those early days talk about the ways in which voices were silenced, I certainly um, came to realise how they couldn't talk in terms um, of the ways in which they thought and felt about what was happening to them. And, you know, footballers, at least in the UK, are criticised for falling back on stereotypical ways of talking. Um, and yet those ways of talking are a safety net for them. 
it means they can often articulate their thoughts and feelings in which which are in ways which are safer than publicly to do so because they certainly aren't going to talk about what they really think and feel it was so it was really interesting for me to hear all the stories from all the multiple players i spoke to that were very similar in kind that questioned the idea that what it was that they were doing was something that they that they they loved doing. But so would you say that initially when young players, well, women's football is growing as well, so we can say young boys and, and young girls, that when they start out and what is the cultural narrative that is offered is something like football as a calling or a vocation or, yeah, a dream dream job, really. So would you say that that's the starting point when young people enter these uh, environments? Yeah, I mean for for all the athletes that I meet now not just footballers there is that assumption that it is something that that is good to aim for that they're going to really get something from it of course it, from its work it's their job they have to pay their bills there are material needs but there's an extra dimension to their work that you don't often hear spoken so dominantly um which is around this specialness this you know i think i refer to it as a, a kind of psychic income you know, on top of a an economic income and um that's that's something that's quite unusual you 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 hear it in other professions of course musicians actors i guess but for both young boys and young girls now they're striving to achieve something but actually that what they're striving for is the product of the social relations that they keep I've come across a lot of players who felt that they had no other what else would it be that they would be doing everybody expected them to do this that they they found over time it a real struggle to articulate the idea that perhaps they didn't want to do it so I've spoken to a number of of footballers who said well I ended up signing a contract but I didn't really know what I was signing for um it seemed to be as much for their their dads and their mums as it was for them they hadn't a real they hadn't a really clear idea of of what they should be doing or how they should be doing it there were there were the cultural narratives the cultural scripts are literally there that they fall into and it's very difficult for them to think or feel in any other ways than the ways that are prescribed on these these scripts and so the, the tragedy is that that in the UK now that they are they've constructed these schools of excellence and academies that take players both boys and girls from such young ages and from very young ages seven eight nine ten they're already starting to recognize and use the language of work in relation to what two or three generations ago would have been play and so i, I think it, it, it there are real moral and ethical questions that are surrounding the ways in which all sports are now setting up the the talent pathways or the production of labor It, it, from from one sport to the next, I think they're doing this in, in ways which they believe are the right ways to do it. It's now supported naturally by sports scientists, sports psychologists, nutritionists, but they are naturalizing a process which I think is producing alienated athletes from much younger ages. And I, and I do think this is why we're seeing mental health issues in, in in athletes from much younger ages as well, because they they get to the ages of between 16 and 20, and they've already been in these systems for, for the best part of 10 years. And I think they're sick of it, uh, but unable to argue, articulate what it is that, that they're, they're struggling to handle, because in fact, the scripts that surround these sports disable 
their ability to articulate their thoughts and feelings in ways which are different or alternative to the ways in which are normalized within within these sports i think this is a really important point for anybody working in high level sport moving forward to think carefully about how in which how they intrude on people's lives what does that intrusion look like and 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 how can they support better these athletes so that they don't become the one-dimensional types of people that I think sports are so brilliant at producing. Yeah, I think that's such an important point about work, uh, how sport becomes work even earlier and earlier. And in the last couple of years, I've been involved in a longitudinal study where we followed talented athletes in various sports in Finland. And one of the, when we had some interviews, we just asked them to produce some kind of visual representation of what would be your dream day like what would be the best day you can think of and I think we had 17 participants and maybe nine or ten of them the dream day for them was to have a holiday and no sport at all so I think that tells quite a lot about and more broadly many of them also talked about sport in very work-like terms so they'd be 16 17 year old athletes so I've I've seen (laughs) heard these kind of stories as well what you are talking about well i think for some of them i I still believe that there are young boys and girls trapped within these older athletes who still love to in inverted commas play you know they still like to go out and executing skill they still get the sense of the the skill and the craft that goes with that kind of the execution of their skill and 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 the the sense of flow i think you might call it um in psychology but um, you're absolutely right that the the meanings that they attach to what it is that they're doing change. And I think that's the thing that captured my attention so much over the course of time was understanding not the more objective career stages that might unfold for, for any athlete, but, but actually the more subjective journeys that they go on, irrespective of, of how it's looking to outsiders. How do they actually think and feel about what is unfolding for them? I, I, had, I came across lots of athletes who were apparently achieving success, but who told a slightly different story about what that success meant and how they were experiencing it. So from the outside, it looked as though, you know, that they were, they were making it, that they were really achieving. They were winning games or winning cups or winning leagues or going to tournaments and doing well. But in fact, they experienced those events in very different ways. And, you know, before we started um, this conversation, I talked about a sort of vanity project. It would, and it would be to do that. It would be to, to produce an autobiography or a biography of, a, of an athlete in which one part was telling the story that we could see as people looking in on that journey, but actually then to talk with the athlete about actually the, the alternative journey that they were on. And, and so often I was finding a sort of a dissonance, a, a, a separateness between the two stories that were being told. And I think that's really interesting, the changing meaning over the course of time. I, I am Nora, a, an old school interactionist at heart. And, and the idea of coming to understand the realities of yourself is something that's really captured my attention, particularly for professional athletes, um, and and how they they can start off attaching attaching particular meanings to what it is that they're doing, but then how those meanings come to change, and and so many athletes that I come across 
tell me similar stories of the ways in which their work has come to mean literally it's a job that's going to pay their way and meet their material needs more than any other thing that's connected to it. And so the story, I mean, naively, when I started my research, I started talking to the athletes about injury because I thought, well, they've all been injured. They've all got a story to tell about that. And and, and what was the what was the meaning that they attached to their injury? Well, it was often not about the hurt or about the recovery or the recuperation. It was always about the time of the season that it occurred and what that would mean for them in terms of their next contract, because so many athletes, I realised, but particularly the footballers, were on relatively short contracts. And if depending on their injury and its relative closeness to the renewal of the contract, they often had a strategy either of stepping away and recovering properly or carrying on in pain, just taking injections or tablets or whatever they might they might have. So the meanings that surrounded the injury were were, were really complex to understand. And actually, you know, at, the, the, at that point in time, I, I found very few people writing about those kinds of contradictions. It was much more about, well, if you get an injury, you follow this path, and this is your path to fitness. And the sort of the more pristine, abstract journeys that the athletes were supposed to have from injury back to playing didn't resemble anything like the kinds of journeys that I was I was hearing and so just talking about injury shed light on um, contracts it shed light on family life it, it shed light on their relationship with other players it, it was a sort of an introspective journey they reflected back on what 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 it was that they were doing there and why they were they were there it was that punctuation mark but for some of them, they understood that they, and they could see it happening to players around them. It was a stepping stone away. It gave the club an excuse not to renew their contracts. For others, they, they would grasp a picture of where they, they sat at their club in relation to the, the chair, the chair people, the, the board of directors, the coaches and so on and, and other players around them. And also importantly, the relationship to the supporters, the paying public. You know, the athletes really got a sense of all of the complex meanings that were bound up in that work through those sort of episodes throughout their careers. And and you started off by talking about these careers being uncertain and precarious, and they are certainly that. But there are sort of more intense periods of uncertainty and precariousness built in through a more general precarity. And I think I think that's what makes these athletes, these workers so really interesting, because this is unfolding in a really public space. Everybody's talking about you. Are you going to recover in, in time for particular games or particular events? And, and so the, the, the meanings are constructed for you. And sometimes there is nothing for these athletes to do about the kinds of meanings that commentators, journalists, fans, are, you know, they're attributing a meaning to you that doesn't relate to the way in which you're thinking and feeling about what's happening. And I, I found that so very hard to write about. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you mentioned Katrina's work, Katrina Douglas, and she has some autoethnographic work on on the stories that are written about her in the media compared to the story that she feels that is her own story and and a more authentic story. And and you have some exciting work uh, recently published with Jacqueline Allen Collinson, where you also talk about this public uh, self and and the more more private uh, personal self. So. Do these athletes almost need to construct like two completely different identities? So the one that is on on the stage and 
and the other one who is somehow probably felt more I, I think by accident many of them find themselves having to do something like that I mean these kinds of ideas stem out of previous work I did on disidentification where I realized that what the athletes were doing was was providing a sort of a, a gap for themselves a sort of a, a breathing space between that public persona and and finding somewhere where they could actually shed that sense of this is the person that everybody is expecting me to be and so they would often disidentify with the very things that everybody else around them was identifying with the problem with that process that peculiar psychological process is that it didn't disturb the relations of power within which they found themselves trapped so nothing would ever change but they would just have to work hard to create what that you know that sort of alluring breathing space for themselves um, as a as a form of self protection as a coping mechanism. They know in their heart of hearts they're doing it for very instrumental reasons. They're highly individual workers by this point. They know that they've got to protect themselves, and and in order to protect themselves, they know that they've got to give those that public, whether it's it's the the coaches at the club, the other players around them, the other athletes around them, as a form of sort of a onlookers, as well as the paying public, they've got to separate themselves out for it. Otherwise, it, if they start to internalise it, it will start to, I mean, I think that's when you start to really get to the kind of more mental health issues that are at the more clinical end. But but I became interested in the kind of social spaces that, that athletes occupied, uh, and that led to the project on the sort of public personas versus the private selves of the athletes and where they went, where they could shed that sense of nobody's watching me at this point. I can, I can just relax. I don't have to be that person that people are expecting me to be. But actually what was interesting about that research, Nura, was that I realised that whether you were male or female, irrespective of whether you were more nationally or more locally well-known, they all had a sense of that. Every time they they encountered somebody, they weren't absolutely sure how that, that encounter would unfold. And so they were always prepared for, they always had to be alert to the idea that they had to present themselves in particular ways. And actually the social spaces that they could go to were very few. And in fact, for some of them, they articulated that even shutting their front doors was no escape from that because within their family circles, there were family expectations. For some, even their wives and partners didn't really get it. And so their partners would articulate what Katrina Douglas would call that performance narrative, the kinds of expectations, because they also suffered from other people talking to them about how their husbands or wives or partners should be in that sense. And, you know, I still don't know whether I, I managed to articulate that as well, because it's the issue comes from the fact that it's inescapable. It's all the time and everywhere. So it's one month after the next and it builds and builds and builds over the course of their careers. And it's very difficult, I think, for the athletes to articulate that. What I think about a lot is the the craftsmanship, to use a C. Wright Mills approach to this, the sort of craftsmanship of, of the research encounter, of the kind of conversations that I want to, to have with the athletes uh, and how they're going to unfold over the, the time, no matter what sort of qualitative approach you might take. And certainly I encourage my students to be more 
um, creative than, than I have. Still, it's what, what are the questions you're going to ask? How are you going to try to get to those kinds of ideas to get to that sense of everywhere I go, people are expecting, expect, expecting things of me. It led me to really question mm-hmm. some of the, the career orientated literature that I was reading. A lot of it focuses on transitional stages. A lot of it talks about very key episodes, but actually nobody was really looking at, and I still don't think people do this, uh, how hard it is just to be in that identity, just to keep it going. From the outside, probably don't seem very much, but for the athletes themselves, can be hugely important. And it, they don't involve a large transitional episode or, or, or conversion from one thing to another. It's just about st- staying in the skin of the athlete. Being the athlete is really hard. And I think people underuse ideas around emotional labor, for example, which I, you know, um, many years ago, I, I discovered the, the original work by Arlie Russell Hochschild, and it, it changed the way I, I thought about it. And it brought together, I mean, it brought together my love of Goffman, which is very evident, of course, and I apologize to everybody for it seems to be my default position, really. But um, so I asked for Jackie's help, just because she I know she's an expert in Goffman. She just really helped me think through uh, and help me articulate better, or, or we articulated better together, some of the ideas that I had been struggling to present around the idea, you know, the very idea of, you know, what constituted a very simple idea, what what was front and what was backstage for, for the athletes. And for the outside readers, they would assume that the backstage might be the changing rooms and the training ground. But for the athletes themselves, that was very much on still on show. And, but, but also what I, well, I, I don't know that I've got this idea across well enough, but I'm constantly thinking about the kind of structure of emotion that runs through a lot of this, not just how athletes think and feel about it, but, but the sort of the emotional labor that they go through, picking up on the cues, how hard it is to present the right emotions at the right times. You know, and when I was a young player, Nura, uh, and I still hear this today, people would say, well, you, you've got to play with a smile on your face. Nothing articulates emotional labor better than that idea. How does somebody look like they, they want to be there? How does somebody play with a smile on their face? I found that so hard and I reflected on it. I still hear those kinds of ideas articulated. Yeah. And if you have an injury and you have an interview, you'll always say that I'm very optimistic that I will be <laughs> yeah. back next week or week yeah, after they, that. They pick know, up and whatever I, and I think injury. That's a yeah. real skill mm. of being an athlete because they've they've got to they've got to learn that. And there's there is yeah. so little breaking from it. But I think you know that this is when I talked about earlier about how crushed I am that that sports have these these production processes starting so young. They are learning all of this stuff, how to be, how to present themselves, to pick up on the facial cues, the face-to-face interaction within the changing room with, with senior staff, knowing how they have to be in front of senior staff. This isn't just happening to the players, of course, at those young ages. It's happening for the, the parents and the guardians as well. You know, And I find it peculiar because there are very few other occupations where you would think so naturally about starting occupational life from from such a young age in, in ways that can be so detrimental to, for example, family life. 
I think what one of the things that I've I've realised that this become more important to me listening to the stories of athletes, not just footballers, but I think always football in certainly in the UK offers the most extreme examples. Always, um, how people's journeys reflect the the enormous step changes for them. I mean, I mean, we have both been involved in studies of career transitions, but. Um, one of the transitions that nobody really talks about is transitions in terms of economic and social capital. For young footballers, for example, from quite modest backgrounds, and at 16, you can suddenly find yourself from struggling in a family that's making ends meet to flying by private jet. There is a sort of a, a step change in what Borgia would call habitus that I find fascinating but simultaneously to a step up in economic capital is a, a a crush to your social capital the longer you spend in some of these sports the more destructive the sport is to your ability to develop social capital and to broaden your horizons and i find that so fascinating the the ways in which social capital has opened up particularly within sports clubs, has been the, the emergence of a wider network of sports science support. But one of the things that's always bothered me about that is not so much the technologies that have been brought up, and there have been many brilliant studies of the kinds of the constant surveillance. I mean, football clubs provide, or you know, sports clubs provide the, the most brilliant examples of, of for, for Foucauldians, of the transition to self-surveillance. I mean, I, I think that's that's brilliantly brought out the, the work that I've read on on swimmers and on gymnasts and on others. But the the way in which those circumstances lead you to to only think in particular ways, but becomes a kind of a training incapacity, a sort of occupational psychosis. It leaves you bereft of a way to think of how you might. Think of your future, for example. So a lot of the athletes that I'd always met, it wasn't that they didn't know the end was coming. They, it wasn't that they did, they always knew that they were going to step away from their sports. But I, I became fascinated by their inability to think about how they might deal with that final transition. And they knew they had to do something about it, but their training in sport had incapacitated their ability to think about how they might take that next step. And the, the people that they were with within the sports clubs were part of that that process of incapacitating their thinking, I always felt. But wouldn't it be like at that point you are just supposed to be mobilizing all those life skills that you learned and, and then you'll just be successful in something else? Well, Isn't that the, like the... It, well, it is, narrative? but you know, that's the, you know, they don't understand <laughs> what life skills they have. And I, I and that was the struggle. Yeah. And, you know, and I thought I would think to myself, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. if you were, you know, I I, I went to a, a big London club to interview uh, a couple of footballers. But if they had an injury, they were meeting one person after the next who also had digested the performance narrative, who understood what the athletes should be saying and doing at particular points. And so the athletes have become really acutely aware of, irrespective of whether it was a strength and conditioning coach, whether it was a physiotherapist or doctor, or whether it was a sports psychologist, they all understood and knew how they should behave. And they all had to work at that presentation of self 
irrespective of who it was. That was a lot of emotional labour that was going into all of those encounters on any one day. Even the people that are there who are really there to try to do their best to support them, I felt at times were inadvertently having the the reverse effect that they weren't safe spaces for these athletes to, to visit at all. And so it, it, was, it became really interesting for me to think through, if you were a young player, and I apologise, I keep saying young player, that that's my football default position coming out time and time again. But if, if you're yeah. a young athlete going into these places, we don't know very much about how you've dealt with social relations in your lives. Other than the other athletes around you who really get what it takes And in most circumstances, the other athletes around you, you've quickly realised, are there and they are scrapping for the same funding, the same contracts that you are, and you come to learn that you can't rely on them. So you're not going to reveal yourselves. I mean, one of the the really sad outcomes of the the early research I did with the footballers was to realise that these athletes had no friends at the club. And they struggled to make and keep friends. And they all use these, this peculiar phrase, these athletes are, my teammates are, are my acquaintances. The narrative, though, is that, you know, even if you're in an individual sport, you're surrounded by your, in inverted commas, your team, who are also looking out to protect themselves. Just being yeah. an athlete, I think, is really hard. You know, I read a lot of literature on the stepping up in, in, in age groups and in in class categories uh, and the kind of the extra training demands that this brings i think they're some of the easiest transitions that the athletes make by and large i think learn, learning to deal with the step up in a public profile particularly in the age of social media i think is is really hard and i think individual sports you talked a lot about team sports so football for example but i think in individual sport and a lot of athletes are now relying on sponsors and they get those through being visible in the media so for them this presentation of the self in in the social media becomes then like a really central part of making a living from sports so i would guess that that intensifies this need to present yourself in a certain yeah, way yeah i mean and you have to media. be careful how you do that i mean but everybody loves seeing a every now and then a bit of a human side of people. You can't do that too much. You've got to be very careful yeah. about that. But I think one of the, the things that emerged out of the project and the writing that I did with, with Jackie Allen Collinson was this, this the contradiction that sits right there in front of us, in front of us all, which is in, in terms of understanding these athletes' lives is that they are searching for spaces where they can be themselves. They're so searching for a sense of isolation but it can bring a sense of loneliness. You're surrounded by people who simply don't get you. And I think there's a loneliness to that. While simultaneously, as you rightly say there, having to having to search out spaces to present yourself because you're sponsored by people who want to see you in the public eye. And and I I think that is hard. That is you know, there's a project right there, Nura, or uh, or someone, perhaps me and, and others together, which is a you know, again, I see that related to those those Goffman ideas about presentation of self and, and, and emotional labor I don't know whether there is this this yeah. type of work offers us an opportunity to build conceptually 
on those ideas. And I think that would be really interesting to explore because, you know, and I'm very familiar with your work and, you know, we, we could be talking as much about the kind of meanings that are constructed out of all of the relations, the social relations that we're talking about here. And with these notes, we will finish up the first part of our conversation with Martin. So thank you so much for listening and I hope you join us back for the second part of our conversation. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Through Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.